Podcasting from the heart of the Gator Nation in Alachua County, Florida, this is Extension Cord, a podcast of UF IFAS Extension Alachua County where we plug in and bring UF IFAS Extension to life. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Dr. Taylor Clem with UF IFAS Extension in Alachua County. Today we have Dr. Savannah Berry joining us, and she's a regional specialized agent in coastal ecosystems based out of the Nature Coast Biological Station in Cedar Key, Florida. always wanted to be on a podcast and this is my first one so i'm super excited excellent yeah these are i mean they're really fun to record um i want to so today we're going to talk a little bit about what like the nature coast biologic station is and some of the research and cool things that you're doing and luckily you know i'm familiar with some of the research and a little bit of your background but could you tell us a little bit about yourself i mean you're a regional specialized agent in coastal ecosystems but i mean that's a very broad term so tell us a little bit about your background and how you're doing what you're doing now Sure. Yeah. So I am originally from Virginia and I moved to Florida for graduate school. So I did my undergrad at UVA in biology and then I came to graduate school and did a master's and PhD in fisheries and aquatic sciences with Tom Fraser at UF. And during that time, I worked a lot on seagrass ecology. And so I did work in the Caribbean, but most of my work actually focused on the Big Bend or the nature coast of Florida. And so pretty much seagrass, seagrass, seagrass has been my background <laughs> before I got into this job, which uh, anyone who's familiar with extension will know that makes you a generalist immediately. So now I work a lot more on things like citizen science, um, programs that allow people to get involved in doing science and helping scientists and demonstration projects on various habitat restoration. And I'm sure we'll get into all of that, but my background is really pretty much basic ecology in seagrasses. That's excellent. So I do have to ask, so you're, you're from Virginia, and you ended up with an interest in aquatic ecosystems. Was it, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're familiar with the Chesapeake Bay area then, because that's the only really <laughs> connection I can make with in the, just immediately for, with Virginia and water. Yeah, right. I mean, so I am from a landlocked county in Virginia, but we visited the Chesapeake Bay and we ate lots of blue crabs and oysters growing <laughs> up. And I really learned in high school actually about how the Chesapeake Bay was really a shell of its former glory. And that made me really upset because we Virginians are very proud. And I felt like that was something that had been robbed from us. And I wanted to make sure that didn't happen in other areas. And really my naive goal when I was young was to become part of saving the Chesapeake Bay, which of course now I'm down here in Florida. Um, but that was the original impetus, yes, and that's an iconic estuary. It's, uh, I believe, the largest estuary in the United States. So. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we could probably have a full conversation on how the success stories of the Chesapeake Bay and the work that's been going on there over the past like 30 years. Um, but, yeah. So that's, that's excellent. I know because, um, you know, when I think of aquatic systems um, here in Florida, you know, we have water all around the state. I mean, with the freshwater sources or uh, saltwater, uh, the coastal areas, and they all have a strong relationship with one another. And I know since this is kind of like your forte, can you tell us a little bit about like 
Florida's water resources, especially if we're thinking about, uh, you know, seagrass areas or that big bend area, nature coast, why is it so important to Florida? Yeah, so one of the biggest lessons I had to learn coming from Virginia to Florida was that the geology is completely different in Florida than most of the rest of the United States. We have a limestone base to our state here in Florida, and in Virginia, it's mostly a granite bedrock. And so here in Florida, that means that because we have a more porous geology, it makes our water resources much more vulnerable over a much shorter period of time to the things that we humans do on the land. And because Florida is one of the most populous states, we've got lots of housing developments, we've got lots of farms and ag, we have just a lot of human activity, right? And a lot of paved surface and things like that that cause a lot of the pollutants that go along with everything that we do to be able to flow off into our surface waters, but also percolate through that limestone geology. And coastal ecosystems are unfortunately the end receiver, they're the, last, uh, they're the last stop for all of those pollutants. So every step along the way, um, that water is gathering up more and more of that, unless we have natural systems in place to sort of absorb and capture those pollutants. Mm -hmm. So in systems that have been highly modified, which describes most of our state here, um, we have a lot of, of unadulterated pollutants just going straight out into our coastal ecosystems, which can cause reductions in light, which is the main driver of seagrass loss uh, globally mm. and also in Florida. And uh, reductions in light come generally from algal blooms that are fueled by specifically nutrient pollution, but there can also be sediment pollution. If we have a lot of development and you know, loose sediments going out, that can create shading too by having more particles in the water. We call that turbidity, but yeah. Turbidity. So, yeah. I, um... That's one of the points that I always like to talk or bring up with people is, you know, um, especially so many people from Florida are transplants. I'm a transplant. You're a transplant. Um, I mean, there's a lot of native Floridians, of course, but I always like to talk about our relationship with water. And I think you hit a key point that sometimes is missed is that every Floridian, I mean, every, everybody is directly connected to water, no matter where you live, if you're in a watershed, a spring recharge area, but I mean, I feel like especially so with Floridians, because of exactly what you said, you're talking about the limestone, and there's that direct connection and link between developed areas or homeowners or whomever it is with the aquifer, and I mean, here in Alachua County, we have multiple sinks where the water or surficial water just goes straight into the aquifer. And right. I mean, that has a huge impact on water quality. And, you know, in a lot of cases, our coastal systems are the receiving end of a lot of those pollutants and they're in potentially in some cases, higher quantities or they're just, it's, it's more severe, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. And a lot of other estuarine systems around the country, it's more more of surface water runoff. That's the concern. But here in Florida, we have to deal with both that and the groundwater pollution that can occur. And because Florida's geology is different from the rest of the country, I think you're exactly right that a lot of our transplants don't um, don't have that knowledge, inherent knowledge about that. And that's really important to remember. And what's interesting about the nature coast where I'm based is we actually are sometimes called the Springs Coast, especially in oh, really? the Southern region. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's because we have a lot of, of, of high magnitude springs that feed directly into the coast through coastal rivers. So in a lot of inland springs, it's just sort of a spring 
um, and maybe it flows into a, a freshwater river, but we have a lot of springs that flow directly out and create estuaries. And so oh, wow. all that groundwater pollution has an even more direct conduit to our area here in the, especially the southern nature coast. Mm -hmm. And I can see how, I mean, you're talking about plant material and, you know, we can benefit from having like the ecosystem services. So seagrass has a huge role to play that can help with maintaining that uh, ecosystem. But if it ends up being impacted negatively through the algal blooms, or you're talking about turbidity in the water, um, you know, we lose that value of that that system, not only for water quality, but also the biodiversity and other uh, flora and fauna that live within those systems. Yeah, so seagrasses are really important. I mean, the estimates that are out there for Florida are that between, you know, 80 and 85% of our commercially and recreationally important species depend on seagrass for at least part of their life cycle. So that includes things like gag grouper that people love to fish for offshore mm -hmm. that they may not connect directly with seagrass meadows, but it's also our spotted sea trout and redfish and some of our most valuable sport fish. And a lot of people do that for fun or even some people depend on those fish for their living. Um, so yeah. yeah, seagrass is an important part of the of the puzzle, but there's also oyster reefs and and mm -hmm. marshes and other parts of the whole system that's all connected. As you said, you know, Floridians are all connected with the water, but the water also connects all of those different habitats together. Right. So like we we isolate some of these habitats just for us to try to understand them. But in actuality, they're they're one big system that all benefit and work in cohesion with one another. Yeah, that's right. And to give an example of that, you know, marshes are that fringing area that are right at where the freshwater meets the salt and they have a really important role to play in capturing some of those sediments that are coming out of their rivers and capturing some of those nutrients so that they don't just flow straight out into the marine waters where they can cause worse issues. So the marshes help out the seagrasses by improving water quality. And if you lose that buffer of marshes, then you're putting your seagrasses and other more marine saltier resources at risk. So that's just an wow. example of the connectivity that occurs. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. I, I think that's an important picture to paint because sometimes that's lost on, I mean, just in general, you know, you try to think of what's that bigger system and how is it, how are they all interconnected? Because they are. Um, and you, bit, you did mention like the sport fishing. Um, you know, when we talk about water quality, a lot of it has to do with the environmental impacts of maintaining ecosystems. But, you know, when we're talking about Florida's economy, so much of that is dependent off of fresh, fresh water or at least, sorry, clean water a high water quality and so having healthy ecosystems. Um, I, I know the number off the top of my head, but I just know that tourism, at least with regarding the sport, sport fishermen is rather significant within the state. Yeah, and I think there have been new numbers released, but I, I know that a recent report was something around seven and a half billion dollars annually that comes from saltwater fishing in the state and that's, that's a you lot. Know, yeah <laughs> it's, i think it might be up to nine billion in the most recent report i don't don't quote me on that because i haven't had time to read it yet but um it's billions for sure i mean that's that's significant i mean if you're i if we're talking about water quality you know the environmental part of it is very very important but obviously we can see a huge economic impact 
as well. Yeah, and I mean, just to, to put some more numbers on it, there are more than 4,000 licensed saltwater fishing guides in Florida. And so that's already 4,000 jobs that we know are directly tied to that. And that's not counting any of the bait shops or any of the marinas or boat service industries that then are created uh, from all of those charter captains running their boats all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge multiplier and, and a lot of jobs directly dependent again on those fisheries, which as you said, are linked to the water quality and the habitat quality. Wow, and then, I mean, we can always speak to the public so much about like, why, why do, what are some of the best things that you love about Florida? And so, much, so many of the activities, especially the outdoor recreation activities, are directly tied to water quality. Um, so, I mean, that's a significant number. That's really cool to point out. But I want to segue. I want to jump into, so we really talked about water, of course, and the importance of the coastal systems. But it, how do we tie this in? So you are part of, uh, you are a faculty member uh, with the Nature Coast Biological station in Cedar Key. So A, I'm jealous that you get to live and work in Cedar Key because that's one of the coolest towns. Um, but tell us a little bit about like how does the, nat the Nature Coast Biological Station fit into all of this? Yeah, so the Nature Coast Biological Station, or NCBS, that we can say for short, uh, it was—it's a yeah, it's a relatively new research and education center at the university. It was founded in 2015, and one of the reasons for that is because this region of Florida, the Nature Coast, which we roughly think of as between Anclote Key and the St. Marks River, has an extremely high dependence of jobs on natural resource quality. It's something like 13% of people in these counties depend on forestry, fisheries, and water-based activity to make up their livelihoods. And statewide, it's more, it's closer to one to 2%. So this is a huge area for natural resources and the natural resource economy in the state. And so there was a, an interest from IFAS to try to support that, you know, environmental quality being sustained in this area. It's one of the last um, undeveloped regions in Florida. It's actually, I think, the least developed coastline in the continental United States. Oh, wow. I think only, only Alaska has less developed coastlines than this area <laughs> of Florida, which is remarkable. And so it's a really special system. And economically, it's an important system for the university to be focusing on. And so that's why it was founded. But IFAS actually has a really long history in the Nature Coast and in Cedar Key. Most people are familiar with Cedar Key clams. Um, yeah. And the clam industry here was supported in a very big way by IFAS and IFAS Extension. So, um, and then also various water quality monitoring programs that have been going on for decades. And so the station was really a way to bring some more focus and cohesion to efforts that had been underway for a while, but give folks from Maine campus and, and other visiting researchers kind of a home base and a place to base more effort and research out of. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's significant. So. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about, because I know there's that tie in with, you know, you have IFAS extension and that role in trying to pull all those programs together and, uh, the C grant program is part of that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that C grant program? Yeah. So C grant is kind of a play on land grant. So if mm -hmm. people know the history of extension, they know that, you know, the universities were given a land grant and to focus on uh, developing strategies and things for agriculture. But then later in the um, 19, 
I'm going to misspeak here. I think it was the 1970s because we just had our 50 year anniversary in Sea Grant. Um, the federal government created the Sea Grant program. So we are responsible for doing coastal extension, similar to how the land grant program areas are responsible for doing extension in terrestrial systems. Um, so initially it was focused a lot on commercial fisheries, but as our the makeup of our coastal industries has shifted, there's been a lot of focus on um, recreational fisheries, uh, tourism and sustainable tourism and, and even citizen science and getting the public involved. And it really varies by state what which Sea Grant programs focus on which audiences, but we're one of the biggest Sea Grant programs here in Florida because we have some of the most coastline. Mm -hmm. and, um, there actually are also sea grant programs for the Great Lakes, even though it's not the ocean, but they do have a lot of coastline. So yeah. it's a great, great program. But I think that's, you know, one of those things where we hear that term a lot, that sea grant. So I think that really kind of helps kind of paint that big picture for us. And um, you know, so the, the biological station, the sea grant program just had that 50 year anniversary. And UF IFAS has been working out there for a while. Um, so what are some of like the big success stories that have come from um, NCBS since, you know, it was started doing some research or work out there? Yeah, well, there are several that come to mind. I mean, we already mentioned the clam industry, which is probably the biggest one. It's something like a $50 million annual industry just in Cedar Key alone. So mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Um, but in five years, we've been able to accomplish a lot at the biological station. We've uh, brought in a lot of grant funds to do pilot habitat restoration projects focused on things like propeller scarring and sustainable shoreline management, so marsh restoration and with the goal of protecting property at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so we have some really cool demonstration projects out there that help managers design future projects and help people see what's possible sort of to um, mitigate some of the damage that's been done. Even though this isn't that developed of a coastline, we have a lot of shallow water and we do have some urban coastlines that need to be restored. And so showing people how that's done, I think we've done a great job right out of the gate of being able to do that. Um, there have also been some really cool successes in terms of fisheries management. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot on habitats and plants, but other faculty at the station work on recreational fisheries questions and um, ecosystem modeling. And they sort of are looking at harvest rates and trying to help managers make better decisions or more informed decisions about say fish bag limits or size limits or things like that and so we've had a few examples uh, horseshoe crabs and sea trout and even snook come to mind as species that the management agency in the state has directly consulted us on and partnered with us on wow. research to make better decisions so you know changes in policy they may not seem like a success to some people but it is when it's <laughs> pretty significant leads, yeah yeah when it leads to future sustainability so that's yeah. that's all some cool stuff that we've been working on i you mentioned something that i think is really important you mentioned the citizen science because when we talk about extension you know it's not necessarily just doing research but it's really how do we engage the public how do we engage the public in outreach to really communicate you know not only the research and science that's happening with uf but what are those changes and how to get them involved and when you mentioned citizen science you know i kind of like oh i want to talk about that that's that's an interesting program and i know that you have some citizen science projects going on right now 
Yeah, so um, citizen science is really perfect for extension because it allows us to engage our stakeholders and give them education and training, but also a way to contribute to some really longer term outcomes. So the horseshoe crab thing that I mentioned before about fisheries management, that actually came from citizen science data. So our biggest citizen science project is called Florida Horseshoe Crab Watch. And it was founded here in Cedar Key with collaboration from FWC and a, and a faculty member in UF biology. And, but now it's a statewide program and FWC oh, has a full-time staff member dedicated to this program and people from all around the state are collecting data on nesting horseshoe crabs and that data was directly used in a stock assessment for horseshoe crabs. And so we've heard from our volunteers that knowing that their data is going somewhere useful and important makes them feel like they want to participate at a higher level. It's not just for fun, like this is really right. management quality data. Another example of that is the coastal lake watch sites that we have. We call it water watch since it's not the lake, but we have people out there <laughs> collecting water samples monthly in these areas that are so rural and DP has limited resources. And so they can't cover all of the areas that need to be sampled. And because lake watch is such a well-established program, the data they collect can also inform management. We, mm -hmm. It can be an early warning indicator if we're starting to see some of these problems that we know plague so many other areas of the state. And so, you know, when I think about citizen science, I think that if you're gonna ask people to give their time and volunteer their effort, the data they collect should be going somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's a philosophical difference that some people don't share. Some people think that just having people go through the motions of science gives them more connection to it. And I do believe in that, but in extension, we're really supposed to be creating changes in right. our communities. And so that's why I personally focus on management quality citizen science, but there are so many opportunities out there for people um, to participate in all kinds of citizen science. And I think all of it is great. But here at the station, we kind of, again, are always looking for ways we can partner with managers and mm -hmm. try to help cover data gaps um, in this really important area of the state, but often overlooked. I want to ask, you know, if I want to ask more about some of your research, but say someone wants to get plugged in or wants to participate in some of the citizen science, like with the horseshoe crabs or water watch or lake watch, um, how, how can they do that? So we have a, a website. If you just Google Nature Coast Biological Station, you can find our website and our extension tab on the homepage will take you to various sections that I've been talking about. So we have uh, information also I don't know if you can make my contact information available to people in the description of the recording. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, people can email me. Uh, we have uh, a lot of opportunities for people. And sometimes also for our habitat restoration, we have volunteer events with marsh planting and things like that that are a little bit harder to predict. But the horseshoe crab watch is every fall and spring mm -hmm. and the water sampling is monthly. Yeah. Uh, so so those kinds of things are always available for people to be involved in. Excellent. Yeah, I've I've done some. I haven't done any of the horseshoe crab uh, citizen science, but I have actually participated in like Lake Lake Watch program uh, right. before. And that's actually a lot of fun. It kind of gives you an excuse to go out paddling or do something fun. And then you get to, you know, take some water samples. It's really easy to do. So um you know, I'd encourage anyone to try to plug in and try to do any of that citizen science that's happening around them. Um, but, 
you know, with some of the other research that you all are doing, I know that um, you mentioned like the continual research with some of the fisheries. What are some of the other notable uh, research that's happening in the in your at the research station or the biological station? Sorry, and um, that you would like to kind of highlight. Yeah, so probably one of the main things that we haven't talked about much yet is the uh, impacts of climate change and changes uh, yeah. in water and uh, land use in the Suwannee mm -hmm. Basin. And so Cedar Key is at this really interesting latitude in that it's a transitional zone for many species uh, from tropical to temperate. And so we call mm -hmm. that an ecotone. So it's this transitional zone. And we've been seeing in this region of the state of increasing dominance of mangroves, which are mm -hmm. normally tropical species because they can't right. tolerate freezing. And they have been coming more and more into this area. So we've had folks that have partnered with us with either intern projects or things like that to look at that, at the ecology of how that's gonna change our system or even just track and map that over time. Mm -hmm looking at changes in biogeochemistry between mangroves and marshes, because we really do think that this is going to be a continuing trend. Even if we do happen to get a hard freeze that knocks the mangroves back, we pretty much think they're here to stay because of right. the temperature trends we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of other species that come along with that. There are things like uh, roseate spoonbills that are nesting here. Um, wow. And the wildlife refuge is mostly researching the, the sort of the bird, the changes in the bird populations. But a major project that has captured a lot of people's interest here has been studying the dynamics of the range expansion of the common snook, mm -hmm. which is a really important sport fish, especially in South Florida. And mm -hmm. traditionally, people didn't target them much north of Tampa Bay. But again, similar to mangroves in the last couple of decades, monitoring programs have been seeing snook more and more even throughout the year, all size classes, which indicates they may be spawning here locally. And so we've had several projects here that have been led by our director and other faculty looking at the genetics of the founding population to see if they differ from the Tampa Bay region, which we found that they do, or they found that they do. Mm -hmm. But then also where are the snook going in the winter? Because the waters do get below their thermal tolerance in the winter. So there's some really cool tracking studies going on and a lot of species use the groundwater, the springs as mm -hmm. thermal refuge and snook are doing that. And so characterizing where they're going and overwintering in the Suwannee River and stuff like that. So all oh, of wow. these ecological questions of how these range expanding species are interacting with our coastline and other members of the system mm -hmm. are just sort of, that just gives you a flavor of some of the things that our folks are working on. So are we seeing uh, snook overwinter in some of those like first magnitude springs in the Suwannee? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give away too much because this is new research, <laughs> but we are finding we, the uh, folks that are working on this project, Charlie Martin and mm -hmm. his postdoc Ashley McDonald and our director Mike Allen, they've tracked snook throughout the winter in this region, I'll just say that. I don't oh. want to steal their punchline. <laughs> right, that's what well, that's, that's you, that's strange. That's I mean I mean that's all associated with climate change, warming waters, and they're moving with those those mangroves. I mean that all kind of goes back to well, are they associated? Is that movement associated with mangroves at all, or is it just uh, the warming water? Do you know offhand? Um, I actually don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. It's um, probably more of a tip since both of those species are associated with temperatures. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's probably more so that, but actually snook are even more sensitive to temperature than mangroves. 
Mm -hmm. uh, their minimum temperature is, I think, somewhere around 50 degrees. I could be misspeaking, oh, wow. but whereas mangroves can tolerate down to freezing pretty well, mm -hmm. oh, wow. um, even though it's and, not their optimal. But right, that's that's interesting. That's a that's a pretty big impact. I mean, I think that's kind of an indicator. You know, we see. Um, even in the inland part of the state, we're seeing shifting plants. Um, you know, we're seeing changing ecosystems associated with the warming climate. And when I work with homeowners and they're talking about some of the plant material that they want to use, plants that we could have used here in Alachua County 30 years ago, we can't use anymore because they were right on that line of um, that southern temperate climate. And now we're just a little bit too warm and we're not getting the good cooler temperatures and just the summers fry them. Uh, some of those plants. So mm -hmm. we're seeing just a lot of shifting plant material, but knowing that there's going to be a big environmental shift as well, you know, with mangroves and the fisheries, a lot of that, we don't know how that's going to impact how, you know, mangroves can be very beneficial um, to the coastal systems, but does that end up having, does that end up displacing some of the other habitats? I guess that's all part of what we're trying to learn is what that impact's going to be. Yeah, there's a lot of research, uh, not so much at the biological station here, but throughout the Gulf Basin on what this transition is going to mean. Are there going to be winners and losers, certain things that do better in mangroves and marshes? A lot of people tend to think of mangroves and marshes as just analogous. You know, one is a tropical fringing and the other mm -hmm. is the temperate fringing habitat. But uh, there actually are some meaningful differences in terms of soil properties and carbon quality that are produced. And, you know, the actual physical structure is different with the root systems versus mm -hmm. the stems and, and all of that. So there's a very active area of research on what that's going to mean. And as these other new competitors like snook become more common, what is that going to mean for redfish that typically would be in similar habitats? And so all of that stuff is not known yet, but we do think there will be differences. And, and of course, mangroves are highly beneficial. They do a lot of the same functions as marshes. They're just maybe slightly shades of difference in how they perform those functions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. I think that's going to be really interesting things to learn because, I mean, with that with that changing environment it's going to have a rippling effect on other things we're just trying to understand what that's going to be is you know kind of up in the air but i'm interested to hear more um so if someone wanted to come to ncbs um you know at least y'all are in cedar key and when i tell people in alachua county how do you, or at least Gainesville, how do you get to the biological station? I say you go on Archer Road and you go straight and when the road dead ends, you're there. Um, but you all have programs, you all are set up in such a way where people can come visit you. And I brought, we brought 4-H summer camps there before, but if someone wanted to come to NCBS, they have the capacity to, correct? And what are some of those programs that you all offer to the community? Yeah, so we have a lot of events and right now obviously things are a little bit in turmoil and we're not under our normal operations, right. but typically we have a public education center downstairs where we have native species aquarium where you can see freshwater estuarine and marine species you know, sort of in an aquarium setting. It's very small room, but we've got mm -hmm. a lot of information packed in there. And so that's pretty much always available when we are open to the public. And then we do 
various events, open house events that where we invite researchers that are doing work to come and have booths highlighting what they're doing. And that's typically annually in September. So mm -hmm. keep an eye out for those events. We're actually going to be doing a virtual one this year just to make sure people still have that window into what we're doing. And as far as K through 12 or 4-H programs, those are mostly centered around the Seahorse Key Lab which is a, a lab that's located a, a three miles offshore on Seahorse Key, which is part of the Cedar Keys National Wildlife Refuge. And we do offer boat trips and other experiences out at that lab. And information about all of that is on our website. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can make inquiries about availability. And it does book up quickly. But again, right now we're not under normal operations. But typically there would be tons of opportunities for people to come visit us and see what we're doing. And that's in addition to all of our extension programs and master naturalist classes and other citizen science trainings and volunteer events that we might have. Yeah, I had the I had a hard time when I was out there with the 4-H summer camp because, you know, I'm supposed to help with all the the 4-Hers, but I was way too involved. It's like I wanted to we were looking at some of the fish, like dissecting them and I was having too much fun. So um, I probably wasn't the best chaperone to be out there, <laughs> but um, I do want to, you know, the thinking about the biological station it's a major resource it's an, a center for research for citizen citizen outreach um and looking at how these coastal systems are going to change because you were talking about how important the biological station is or how important sorry that nature coast area is to floridians um so I want to ask, like, where do we go from here? What's that big next step, like, with the biological station? What are we looking at in the future? And, like, how the station is going to have an important role? Yeah, so I would say our major research priority for the future has to do with changing freshwater delivery to our coastline. And we just were selected, our director was the uh, lead investigator on a grant from the National Academies of Science that just funded a 10 year effort to look at this. And we're really excited for this to start and get underway. But the basic gist of it is that estuaries are naturally dynamic. There are, mm -hmm. you know, ebbs and flows of how much salt water or how much fresh water rather is delivered to that coast. But because of human modifications and also because of climate change, those changes are getting more dramatic. So we have examples all over Florida, like for, for example, in Apalachicola, we don't have enough freshwater mm -hmm. being delivered. Whereas down in South Florida, we often have too much freshwater being delivered to those estuaries. And so that can dr drastically alter the health of the estuarine systems. And here in the Nature Coast region, we've been seeing some concerning changes in the base flow levels of the Suwannee River and that they've been going down on average per rainfall. So even oh, wow. after accounting for differences in rainfall, we've been seeing that the, the delivery of freshwater to this area has been going down. And there have been some major oyster restoration. I won't get into it, but I encourage people to look up the Lone Cabbage Reef Restoration Project. That's a major priority that the biological station has recently taken a bigger role in. Um, but in general, we need to understand how these variations in salinity that are caused by variations in freshwater are going to affect the health of our system so that we can help determine those critical minimum flows and levels, mm -hmm. um, or basically water levels that managers need to maintain to the coast in order to protect these vital resources. And, with climate change, some areas are gonna get rainier, some areas are gonna get drier, and, and also we have to account for development and all of the extra water that 
more population. And so this project that's again being led by our director here is really holistic in that it looks mm -hmm. at all aspects of the system and is going to try to help make predictions so we can better prepare to help prevent some of those really horrible impacts that we're seeing in other areas of the state and the country that haven't necessarily understood those dynamics as well. So, so much of the research of what y'all are looking at isn't just going to be nature coast. It's going to be very extensive for pretty much a lot of Florida's coastal systems and maybe even beyond that to a certain extent. Yeah, a lot of the research we do, we try to connect that and make the applications broader to mm -hmm. to the region. And and then also it's not just coastal because when we're talking about the Suwannee River, it goes mm -hmm. all the way up into Georgia. And so this it incorporates a lot of those terrestrial uh, and freshwater processes as well as the coastal ones. Yeah, and I, I think it's important because that can like bring us back to the very beginning of the discussion where we're talking about the importance of water, you know, all Floridians, everybody's connected to water and all Floridians are connected to water. And, you know, talking about the Suwannee River Basin, that whole watershed area stretches up. Uh, the northern parts of it is um, the Okefenokee. And I mean, so a lot of that water comes down and there's urbanizing areas in there. Um, and that's going to have a huge impact on stream flow, like you mentioned. So decisions that are made as the crow flies, maybe even like a hundred miles away from the outflow of the Suwannee River has those impacts on what we're seeing. So I think that's an, that's an, a big important message to take is this research isn't necessarily just the coastal systems. It's the, we're looking at coastal systems, but it relates to everything that's happening upstream. That's right. And it has yeah. to be necessarily. And, you know, some of the most important things that we can do in Florida aren't as fun to talk about as fish and plants and all the things we've been talking <laughs> about. Things like stormwater management, mm -hmm. low impact development, you know, reclaimed water development requirements, all of these kinds of things can really make a huge difference because it all comes down to how much water and what's in the water that's flowing out to the coast. And everything we do on land impacts that and we can yeah. be better and there's lots of great technologies about how we can be better than the average development today in florida absolutely yeah and there and it can be like little decisions like an individual decides to do a rain barrel or some type of cistern system to catch the stormwater runoff so then they can try to let that flow uh percolate into the landscapes or how they're managing their landscapes to help improve water quality rather than degrade it through best through bad management practices. But you can always go from those little decisions all the way up to what are those policy decisions that need made to help protect Florida's water quality and quantity because again it's all tied to environmental health but also the success of Florida's economic future. <laughs> That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I agree. I think every little bit helps. I think some of those bigger policy things are needed for some of these big developments where there's a lot of money and a lot of uh, decisions being made at a high level, but it is true. Every homeowner, every little bit helps, uh, especially if you're nearby one of these sinks or if you're next to um, a spring area. Kings Bay comes to mind down in Citrus mm -hmm. County. I mean, how you fertilize your lawn in Kings Bay can have direct impacts on the health of that bay. And so it may seem small, but it really does add up. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Savannah, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. And um, I do want to ask if you have like any last message that you would like to share related to the biological station. Um, I mean, I guess I would just say that we've got lots more to come and we have a lot of exciting things. And I, I really hope that I'll be able to come back on this podcast and talk in a little bit more detail or even maybe have another member of our faculty here join us for a conversation because there's uh, we really just scratched the surface. Yeah. And uh, I hope that people in Gainesville will come and see us when we're open for business again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely piqued my interest and my hope is that we will have you and others back on from um, NCBS, but I'll also use that as another excuse to, I'll bring all the recording equipment out to you all. Okay, great. <laughs> so yeah. I can visit Cedar Key. So, um, <laughs> but anyways, thank you very much uh, for your time today. And um, we appreciate all the research and everything that you do with the citizen outreach, et cetera. So thank you very much. Great to be here and chat yeah. with you, Taylor. Thanks so much. Thank you.